Welcome to Growth Interviews. Real experts around the globe giving away their best so that you can become smarter. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Growth Interviews. I have the honor and pleasure to have Ryan Culp here. We've met each other, I think, two or three years ago back in San Francisco. We were speaking at the same conference, at Growth Marketing Conference. Ryan was uh, outstanding, like he is, but uh, now he's much more wiser because he has two, two more years uh, at his belt. So. Uh, Ryan, he's an entrepreneur, he's a digital nomad, he's building stuff and he's also obsessed about being healthy and being performant at the same time. So Ryan, thank you for accepting the invitation and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, excited to be here and talk about uh, what wisdom you think I've picked up in the last couple of years. That was very flattering. <laughs> yeah, so Ryan, first... Tell uh, a bit about yourself to, to the audience and how you've got to the digital space in the very beginning. Sure. Well, I really don't like uh, titles. I've been trying to avoid them lately. So to say, oh, I'm a marketer, I'm a musician, I don't know. I'm, I'm just a guy who drinks iced coffee uh, yeah. as often as possible. But uh, about me, I'm 29 and I've been in marketing and tech for my whole career, which has been, what, seven years and in that time, I've worked with dozens of startups. I've started startups, I've sold products, I've failed, mostly failed. Sometimes they work. Right now I'm in the middle of a couple TVDs and uh, I've been switching between marketing, product, and software development for the last few years, learning each as I needed to become a more well-rounded, um, I guess, entrepreneur and to try to be a more full stack uh, maker or creator uh, primarily, I work on SaaS marketing uh, tools, but over the last few years, that interest has taken me in and out of e-commerce, in and out of freight and logistics, in and out of consumer and makeup and everything in between. So, yeah, again, back to just a just a guy who drinks iced coffee, but I've been trying to share what I learn on my blog, through courses, through apps, through speaking, and so on. Um, so, anything I can do to to help today with with the, the listeners um, game. Perfect. So, Ryan, first of all, tell us how you are seeing right now the, the digital landscape. Because you have, uh, besides the fact that you are accessing the information via internet, you are also traveling a lot, right? And you are seeing and meeting people everywhere. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, there's that movie Cube the series of movies, sci-fi, they're kind of horror movies. Yeah. And they, uh, they make you experience the fourth dimension. We know length, width, and height of depth, but the fourth dimension is time. And when you travel, you are literally traveling through time because in one country or one city, they have never heard of X. And you think, well, I could just bring X here and kill it, right? It would be like inventing, going back 10 years and inventing Uber or something like that. Um, but then you travel to other places, let's say you go to Tokyo downtown and you see why, and you go, wow, they're so far ahead 
of wherever I live uh, and my technology. And so that's just a fact. That's just how it works. The world is all on different paces. But actually, that's how it works in your own in your own ecosystem. So your idea, your execution, your company is at some point in time, it's on that fourth dimension. But whether it's ahead or behind in the fourth dimension, it's sort of somewhat indicative or leading indicator to your success. So again, try to go to Texas or Austin and open a new Mexican restaurant. It's like nobody cares. Texas has a lot of great Mexican. But if you open a Mexican restaurant that's okay, in Seoul, Korea, you're now an innovator. Um, and I went to the number one restaurant in Seoul, Korea on TripAdvisor was a Mexican place. And it was very good. We met the owner, he was great. But I can't say it was the best Mexican I've ever had in my life, but it's the best Mexican in Seoul. And so what we're trying to do here, in other words, is figure out wh what ideas do you have? Where's the intersection of your skill set and your ideas and maybe even your physical location, although with, with digital, everything's borderless, where you can be that Mexican restaurant in Seoul, Korea, instead of the Mexican restaurant in Texas. Um, and if you can do that, you've now created for yourself a lot of leverage, and that leverage in the business sense converts to high margins, converts to premium products, converts to having a barrier to entry, building a great brand, being a leader, a market leader, a thought leader. Um, so that's what I've been trying to do. As I'm traveling, I'm observing just microcosms of the landscape we're already living in, which is your timing is part of your marketing, that's part of your product strategy. Um, and I didn't used to appreciate that. I used to hear people say, well, they were ahead of their time and the market timing was wrong. And I thought that was a poor excuse to just for a euphemism for their failure. But I now do believe timing is a critical aspect and you can think of timing as marketing. Um, so that's kind of what I've been meditating on lately. That sounds uh, sounds interesting, and uh, I I totally appreciate uh, this because we we ourselves have been ahead of our time at some point, and uh, we've seen how much it hurt. And uh, after two years, we thought, oh, you know what? Maybe we should have started right now. Yeah. So uh, Ryan, around. What's your what's your take around growth? So we we ourselves we've been speakers at another conference as well in uh, in Europe this time in Milan a few months I think already and uh, your your talk was quite interesting around growth and if you can emphasize the 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 outcome of that uh, that talk that would be great to 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 share your perspective and your vision towards what growth means for a professional in the digital space Sure. So to sort of summarize my talk or what I wanted to communicate with my talk, and now I get a second chance to, is that as marketers, we're so in love with tools and tools are great because you have an idea. You say, if I can only get this message in front of these thousand or 50,000 people, uh, then do a little math, 3% convert, and then I have customers. And I can just do that over and over again, build a company, build a career, make the world a better place. Right. Uh, but when we look at those tools, uh, and those tools can do that. So, you know, you want to get a message in front of people, you can turn on the advertising lever, and you can turn on a, an email marketing lever, you can turn on these tools and press, and these are all tools. But there's another tool that a lot of people ignore, which is the operator of those levers, that's you. And so we say, well, no, I'm, I'm not ignoring that tool. I read books, I go to conferences, and that's great. But I think what happens is 
we operate a lot of these tools at like half capacity. And by that, I mean that we don't have like the stamina, the energy, the thoughtfulness, the, um, the enthusiasm, the empathy for our customers as we could have, as much as we could have to make each of those lever pulls more effective. And so as I've been reading about, let's say Peter Drucker, reading about the effective executive, reading about these great leaders who have made three decisions in a 10 year span as a CEO of a company. And those two or three decisions led to the growth, growth of 10X. You know, you don't hear someone like Jack Welch say they did thousands of A-B tests, right? <laughs> they, they actually just eliminated every business that wasn't one or two in its space. And so how can we learn from that? How can we find these inflection points and make big critical decisions? Um, and again, there's something to be said about iterative agile uh, changes, and I do that too. Um, but my talk was about how can we change ourselves so that every lever we pull as a growth marketer is more valuable. And what I talked about is just working hard and trying to achieve our potential and making sacrifices so that we can do the high leverage activities. And um, I tried to, tried to deliver this in a way that's not too, uh, not too controversial. I think maybe some parents and some other people with more of a life, a social life than me might have disagreed a bit. But otherwise, that's really what I've tried to get to um, in this talk and, and what I've been trying to live by this year. That sounds fantastic, but uh, in order to, to, let's say, pay attention to your level of enthusiasm or, or empathy, you need to be self-aware, right? And a lot of people are on autopilot, even though they are working mm. in, a, in a huge corporation and even if they are a solopreneur, few people are actually taking care about this physical body and their mental structure properly because i can i've seen this on my own skin as well we are abusing this uh, this body we are uh, sleep deprived right and like elon musk which is the one of the most admired entrepreneurs he had the break he had the burnout because of lack of sleep and he admitted this eventually but we lack the the tools because we are data driven we tend to look at google analytics we tend to look at all these tools so that we can check the health of the system which is outside ourselves we we check the health of our e-commerce our business our website our whatever our department but we don't have the 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 tools and the the ways the means to actually monitor our health state we, we were uh, looking at uh, your own experiment about, right, if we can disclose that, you are meeting only meat every day, right? And yes. But you are checking the effectiveness of this experiment from time to time because there's an external authority that can say, you know, Ryan, you're actually good and that's your doctor. And we lack the means to actually monitor all these things. How can we cope as marketers with this, with the fact that, that our human vehicle is not giving us the signals to, to not to, to actually consider something and, uh, and changing our, our behavior? Mm. Yeah, great question. I'm unqualified to answer, but I'll try. Uh, <laughs> well, first we have to separate, first we have to acknowledge our feelings from reality. And a lot of times, Reality does not reflect our feelings or, or vice versa. Um, 
And so, for example, there's been a big argument. It's funny what's written on the wall behind you. Uh, be data-driven, be driven. Uh, for the last few years, marketers have had to go through this shift. This has really happened over the last 40 or 50 years, not because uh, I've been around to witness it, but because from my readings, this is what <laughs> um, Marketers over the last five decades have had to become a lot more data-driven. Previously, it was the Don Draper era, and you could have a, uh, a wince of genius while drinking scotch, and mass media was and still is generally very cheap in the sense that you could get in 20 households for a fraction of a penny. And so mass advertising worked because it was so cheap. If you showed your, your ads to 100 million people, you only needed 1% of 1% to resonate with it. You didn't have to do targeting because it was just cheap enough to, to spray and pray everyone. And over the last five decades, it's gotten more targeting and targeted and now we have to use data and over the last few years, now there's this new renaissance of like, well, be data-driven, but also be empathetic to the human, to the consumer behind the purchase, it's particularly in B2B. We can, we can look at data all day and our churn and this and that, and how many people, what do they click during our onboarding rectangles? Like, do they click this one and that one for 10 seconds each? But then we have to look back in this like circle as marketers, as an interest, industry, um, and somewhere along the way, uh, I think marketers stopped using their, themselves as the ultimate test tube. Um, and, and it's still an amazing question when you say to someone who's trying to sell you something, like, well, would you buy it? Would you use it? And they're like, well, we'll know because blah, blah, blah. You know, so <laughs> you talk to a, a CRM, a CRM, and it's like, well, how do you guys manage your, your sales deals? They're like, well, we built something custom. Like, why don't you use your own CRM? You know, you're total fraud. And so many marketers are working on products like that where they don't use their own product. And that means they're not in touch with the user, which means they're not in touch with themselves because they should be the power user. And then it spirals out of control from there. And then in terms of the individual level, again, I'm not qualified to talk about this, but from my observation, uh, the more marketers have begun relying on tools, like at 2 p.m. today, I can schedule a 9 a.m. thing tomorrow. I can turn my ads on and off automatically. I can schedule an email campaign. So what marketers do is they leave work at 3 p.m. because they scheduled their email campaign for tomorrow morning. And so that means that now they're putting in less, they're putting in even fewer thoughts. They're thinking even less about their job because unless they're clicking or replying to emails, marketers now feel they're not working. But thinking is working. Thinking is how you tap into the human experience. But to sit and think that requires its own kind of energy. And for that, of course, you need the basic ingredients, sleep, food, et cetera. But I've been traveling the world this year and I'm in different regions. When I was in Chiang Mai, Thailand, there were cafes that were 24 hours and at four in the morning, you could not get a seat. I went into one, maybe 1 a.m. to work for a couple hours. I was doing like a long blog post. I've been writing since two in the afternoon. I just wanted to finish it. And I went into a cafe, couldn't get a chair. I did a high table chair thing until 4 a.m., still packed. Then you go to where we met in Milan, can't even work at a cafe, but then I started going to co-working spaces where I am now in Madeira, Portugal. Everyone's gone by 4 p.m. <laughs> and so I go, okay, well, the fastest growing companies are the ones that have time and put in the work to think and serve the customers and use the products. Everyone else who's selling something they don't use, automating everything, relying too much on data, um, 
they're the ones that are, are losing. And so it's, to me, it's kind of obvious uh, from observation. But again, this is anecdotal, you know. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, tell me if you can share, tell us what's the, let's say, what has been your biggest barrier in order to grow your company as an entrepreneur? Hmm. I suppose for me specifically to grow, I need leverage. I need uh, scalability. And I don't mean that in the geeky sense. Oh, it has to scale, meaning I have to, you know, become a billion-dollar company. But I've been working on multiple projects, is what I'm trying to say. So when you work on multiple projects in parallel, it forces you to work on each of them a little bit differently. So, for example, it forces you to write 200 articles in your help guide in your support knowledge base versus just responding to the same email 10 times in 10 yeah. different ways and different people. And so scaling my processes, but then figuring out how do you give people uh, a unique customer touch in a scalable way, personalization of scale. And I'm not the first person to say that phrase. Most people use it in a sales context, but how do you serve a lot of customers really well? Because to me, Growing stepwise, you know, getting a thousand more customers, needing one more engineer to fix bugs, two more support people to service them, one more part-time engineer to manage the the um, back end. That's not interesting to me. That just is like the that's just the hedonic treadmill, and I, I want to get off of that. So how do you do like what WhatsApp did, where they said, you know, when we got our first billion downloads, that's when we hired our first support person. They said something like that. I could be wrong. Maybe the first 20 million users they got one support. You go, well, geez. Now, of course, we're not WhatsApp, but there's a lesson there. And so my biggest uh, challenge has been how do I scale myself? And that's also why that talk I gave in Milan was, was kind of a talk to myself. Uh, if I'm working on the wrong things, we won't grow. Forget the tools. Forget my email copywriting and subject lines. All of that's been proven. Marketers are this crazy breed where we all tell everyone exactly how we do things that worked. No other industry can you find No other like job title. The people say, like, here's everything I did and made my life better. But in marketing, we do that. You can look up data for the best subject lines. You can look up data for the best tools to use. None of that matters. It starts with you. And so that's been a big challenge. And then tactically, I think it's the same as everyone. It's churn. You know, when you get to a point where your organic growth is equal to your churn um, and your business can flatline. And so I've gone in and out of that phase on a couple projects. And that, again, teaches me to scale myself because if I go deep on that project to kind of fix churn, well, now my other ones slip. So you're just juggling, you know, whatever you put your focus on, that's what performs. But how can you create a scenario where um, making one thing more performance doesn't hurt the other? That's the ultimate juggling act. So that's what I've been working on, you know, this year. You, you've mentioned focus, uh, Ryan, and I've seen that companies are let's say defocused individuals are defocused as well so even though they have the awareness and the clarity over what's working and what's not even though they have the knowledge even though they have talented people uh, they don't focus uh, at uh, on the right things and i've seen that maybe we are disagreeing on this or maybe we're agreeing on this aspect but i've seen that companies are 
behaving a bit like human beings. And uh, we, I've seen that there are cultures of companies that are behaving automatically. So mainly they are going to, to, to an autopilot. So they, they keep the status quo. They keep doing uh, the, the same mistakes or they are keep on having the same strategies over growth. And at some point, uh, this market is so dynamical and the competition is so brutal that you can't have the same results using the same methods and strategies and even people and uh, mentality, mentalities. And uh, the question is how you change the focus of, uh, of a company and uh, how you keep your own focus because you as an entrepreneur, you have people that are working with you, right? You have employees, you have people that you need to, to shift their focus towards doing the first things first and always keeping their uh, ears open towards what's new so that they can come and inform you towards changing your own agenda. Sure. So I think a few things to unpack there. Companies perform or act like people. When you said that, I agreed, maybe for a different reason. I agreed because people are often driven, their decisions are driven by their feelings and that's okay. If you're a lover, you know, drive, <laughs> use those feelings. But when you're in a company, uh, decisions get made, a lot of times decisions get made at meetings. Maybe it's a meeting between two senior leadership team members, maybe it's everyone. Different decisions are made by different size meetings, different sized groups. But decisions are made at meetings, and I started noticing in meetings at one of my projects over a year and a half ago that we'd go around. What do you think about this? Sarah, what do you think about this, John? Those are not my team members' names. And they would say, well, I feel like, blah, you know? And feelings, like what, what are we feeling here, you know? We're not saving starving children. That would be pretty cool if we figured out a way to do that profitably, but we're not. <laughs> and what is there to feel? There's nothing to feel, you know? We're talking about CSS, we're talking about, you know, we can have empathy for customers and we can feel that a certain customer felt a certain thing, but when we're trying to make business decisions, why are we using our feelings? So I started policing this actually at our meetings and saying, start, start those sentences with you think. Um, and the way that that's changed things is it, it starts to help you form principles as a team. So how do we to unpack the question further? Competition's brutal. You know, everyone can say, well, you gotta have a great culture. And that culture should be, everybody wants a different culture, but you maybe want a hustle culture. Or you want a culture of uh, collaboration. You want a culture where everyone congratulates each other. Those things are all great, but it's a very slippery concept, culture. How do you create a culture? It's like your brand. You don't really get to decide. You get to shepherd it. You get to steward it. You get to just cross your fingers and hope for it. So I don't pretend to know how to build culture, but you can as a manager, as a marketer, as anyone with influence in your organization, and you should have influence. If you don't, you know, try, try again. You can shape principles, and those principles can be objective. So one of our principles is like anti-authoritarian, right? So at, at FOMO, we're not just going to follow the rules because people say so. And so that bleeds into decisions, which then matriculates into our culture. So for us, if we think we're an innovative company, if we think we're always pushing the limits, you know, we filed patents, we were first to market in what we do. Those are just objective facts. Why would we put our marketing budget behind an advertisement that says buy now? Like that's what everyone could do, right? So why would we, that's incongruent with our principles. And then that turns into this slippery thing of culture. 
So someone who works with us might say, yeah, like we're not really, we don't really do traditional advertising. They wouldn't be able to place why, but it feeds back those, those steps. And so when we think about growth and company building, start with your, your principles, you know, and have a vision. So I've said this at talks before. I actually said this when I met you. Uh, I said this at my talk that day. It was the first thing I said. It wasn't in my, my script. I just got up and I was fired up because something was in my mind. And I said into the microphone, you know, a lot of companies write down a vision, but they don't actually have one, you know? And at FOMO, for example, we have a vision. Our vision is to give honest entrepreneurs the credibility they deserve. And every decision we make can be evaluated through that sentence, through that lens, you know, would this help honest entrepreneurs? So people say, can I use FOMO to fake data? No. And it's not no because somebody's opinion or some individual on the team's feelings that day. It's no because it's incongruent with our vision. So it all starts there. That makes sense, yeah. Uh, Ryan, you, earlier, and that ring the bell, because I'm obsessed about customer retention and uh, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, nowadays we are also looking to, to, to release a product that addresses this, uh, this topic. You've said that when churn will be equal to your organic growth, you will uh, have a flat growth or you will just uh, stop growing, let's say. What's your, uh, what's your take on customer retention? in e-commerce and uh, if you can uh, uh, give us a few let's say angles around customer retention and uh, how you are handling this for your own businesses sure well for e-commerce specifically uh, you know the whole world is moving towards subscription everything not only in the sense that okay you pay every in period but subscription everything in the sense that we no longer own things. And so we're going to this assetless environment where you don't own your car, you just take an Uber every day. So it's sort of like you own a car, you have the same outcome as owning a car, you go to and from work, to and from the airport, but you don't own it. So you're sort of a, an Uber subscriber. Like you're, you're paying on demand, 10 bucks a trip, but if you consistently do 20 trips a month, you know, you just pay Uber 200 bucks a month to subscribe. To, uh, to transportation services. And, but in e-commerce, it's still relatively new. It's barely being tapped. You know, it's, you're like a unique store in e-commerce if you have a subscribe and save option. You know, it's still, it's still just an app. So let's say you use Shopify. Shopify doesn't have subscriptions built in. You have to use an app. But the world economy is moving towards being assetless, not really owning anything. Everything expires and needs to be replenished from blood testing for diabetes strips to ketone strips to cereal. You know, you can get cereal subscriptions now, keto cereal, I'm not kidding. I used to be on one when I lived in New York City. You can subscribe to cereal, okay? But to actually build a company like that, you have to string together different apps. So Shopify, as much as I love them, they're not keeping up with this concept of like, this isn't just a billing gimmick or a way to raise customer lifetime value, although those things are symptom or side effects. This is the way the world is moving towards, is that it doesn't make sense every time I want something to Google around and click a bunch of Facebook ads and go to the third page of results and comparison shop. I should find things I, I love, subscribe to them and not think about it again because humans have better things to do. And so in, in, um, in e-commerce, 
your first step is, I think, to look where the puck is going. The famous quote about Wayne Gretzky, and look at the puck and look where it's going. And figure out a way to refab your products so you can somehow um, justify multiple resales to the same customer. Because if you can't, if you can't, you're just you're just trying to beat a math problem all day, every day as you go to business. You're just trying to keep your margins high enough to afford the customer acquisition costs on Facebook where it's growing. Last year, average cost per click grew 171%. So you're just, you're just playing this math game. You're just trying to stay ahead of the curve with the margin. You're not getting to build a brand. You're definitely not getting to change the world. You're just making Mark Zuckerberg richer and manipulating, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're reading articles about how to manipulate audience targeting and sharing pixels and all that's fine. But like that seems to me so far removed from why a lot of us get into the business, which is to help people. And in the process, when you help people, you get paid. So like stop playing the math problem. Stop dealing with penny margins and figure out where the world economy is going, which is subscription. Start there, your customer lifetime value goes way up. You know, I was just finishing reading the book by the guys at Gainsight, Customer Success. They wrote the, literally they wrote the book on it, right? And to be honest, I thought it was a little bit painful to read um, as a book. I'm pretty critical of writing, uh, just styles, but they made this great point. You don't even need to read the book. Everyone listening, do not read the book. Uh, just this one sentence. They said, every conversation you have with the customer, treat it as a pre-sales conversation because the average customer today uh, in any business, especially a, a subscription business, their lifetime value is usually 10 times whatever they pay you the first time they become a customer. So therefore, you need to treat every conversation like you're not even, <laughs> you're not even close to, to tapping into the value. So people in e-commerce, they just keep spending money on Facebook ads to get that next customer to come in and spend their $25 average order value, and then 1% of those customers have a retention repurchase rate. You know, I've looked at stores with 8% repurchase rate, 15%. But come on, look at a SaaS web app. If you only had 8% repurchase, that's like a 92% churn. You'd be dead before you even get started. But in e-commerce, people are okay with this. They're like, oh, we hit double-digit re repurchase rate. Like, what are you talking about? So that's the first thing to think about. Structurally, you have to get things in place. But the, the caveat is not every product is really built for that. Um, not every product makes sense to buy 10 times. Like wedding rings, right? Sorry? Like wedding rings. Yeah, there you go. And look, divorce rates going up, so people are on average buying more wedding rings than ever. <laughs> you know, they're buying two or three in their lifetime now, not just one. Yeah, so, but, so um, husband retention rate goes down, right? Yeah, exactly. But look, even with wedding rings, you know what is popular now is insurance. Yeah. Right? So we, we bought nice, I got my wife a nice ring, I think, and we got insurance because she was afraid maybe I'll lose it, it will fall off, something like that. So now suddenly we're a subscriber to marriage. We're like a marriage subscriber. We're paying for peace of mind to stay like happily, sparkly walking around as we travel. So that's, there's, there's kind of always room to innovate, right? So I did mention there's, there's a lot of products that aren't really a great fit for recurring nature but there are usually ways to innovate them into that, that structure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Ryan, we are, um, we are seeing these trends around us. We are seeing that Amazon is growing uh, fast. We are seeing that 
Alibaba is uh, growing fast as well. We I've heard the news about uh, something like Tmall or something in China that they are planning to open 1,000 pop-up stores a day starting in 2020. So uh, on a way we have the big guys getting uh, bigger. On another uh, angle, we are seeing more and more people uh, relying on uh, platforms like Shopify in the e-commerce. Do you think e-commerce has a, has a future or do you think this is going to end up like in the auto industry where we have like, I don't know, maybe 50 players around the world which are uh, playing this game? Yeah, it's a great question. Right now, we're living in a parallel universe because you can, you can go buy everything with one search box on Amazon, or you can exclusively rely on quote unquote mom and pop, like buy local, except you can do that buy local by just searching Shopify stores. Um, but what we're seeing is people who were on Shopify who built great products, they're now expanding to Amazon and treating it as a sales channel. And likewise, people who start, you know, they're taking lower margins, but they're getting more predictable sales. And then people who launch products on Amazon and started to figure things out are saying, you know what, there's a lot of competition. I need to build a brand. So to give themselves longevity, they're building branded destinations on places like Shopify. So for now, we're in the parallel universe where doing both is sort of like the right answer. Not really putting all your eggs in either basket, just being on both. Um, but I, I think uh, a couple things. It's like, if Amazon was going to take over, why didn't Walmart take over? You know, like, why did we have decades where changed by and Walmart. Why was every town not just one Walmart? But they weren't because people still want variety. People still have feelings and moods and people are still going to, till the end of time, want to say F you to the big guys, whoever the big guy is. They're going to say F you to their, their politicians that are in charge. They're going to want to say F you to whatever the big corporation is that's in their downtown that employs everybody. People are inherently anti-authoritarian and so I think we can rely on that to, to some degree, protect us from a future where the only place to buy something is Amazon.com. And that's not even getting into other logistical uh, mechanisms in place like antitrust laws, et cetera. I think as incompetent as most governments are, they generally are decent about protecting against monopolies um, because this is how they justify their existence. You know, they justify their existence by telling companies, no, you can't do that. You can't innovate in that way. And so to some degree, the government's there as a protection. And again, our ultimate fallback is um, if we start to look too Orwellian and Amazon's the only website in 10 years, I think people will have a problem with that. You know, I think people will rebel against that. So as long as we see an upward trend in number of Shopify stores open, and Shopify is just one of many, um, that's, all, that's all that really matters. Amazon is where you can go for the non-branded use case. You just want toilet paper, you want a cheap mouth guard, you want a chair. And Shopify and others are where you go when you're happy to pay a little bit more to support individuals and their stories. And I think they can both live in harmony and I think they are living in harmony right now. Okay. Uh, Ryan, I'm asking this question to all the guests in, uh, in, at growth interviews. And uh, to go a bit more at the practical level, our audience uh, is uh, uh, made of e-commerce professionals, e-commerce experts, uh, e-commerce managers, e-commerce owners, uh, people which are looking to grow their, their business. So 
which are your free growth ideas that you would disclose to someone which is looking to, to achieve growth in 2020, let's say? Mm. Well, being asked for three tips on the spot, this is fantastic. Usually <laughs> I can think about it a little bit. <laughs> You're like, e-commerce three, go. Um, yeah, let's go for it. So first of all, I deal and work with a lot of e-commerce stores. I previously helped run an e-commerce store, so I had the personal experience, but now primarily I work with literally thousands of e-commerce stores. So we have two apps on Shopify. We have FOMO and we have CrossSell. Between them, around 5,000, 5,500 active paying installs. So I've been living and breathing the challenges of e-commerce store owners for three and a half years now. So that's my context uh, that I'm not full of it. And one example, when we send newsletters of our tools to these store owners, you know what we get that just kills me? <clears throat> Are so many stock default auto replies from stores. Like, hey, we've received your message. If you're trying to find out your order status, do this. If you're trying to do a return, do this. And you just get the vibe. And it depends on your level of sympathy and empathy and thoughtfulness about customer support. But you just get the vibe that stores don't care about you once you buy their product because they know what we talked about earlier. They know their numbers. An e-commerce store knows that maybe only 6% of their customers are ever going to buy again. So therefore, the moment the transaction happens and they've shipped it or they've just clicked the button and some fulfillment partner is about to ship it, every interaction between them and you, the customer, in their head is a cost. So now they're just reducing their cost center. They're optimizing for that. But instead, if they treated you like this was the beginning and like Jeff Bezos, it's day one, it's day one, it's day one, and that only 10% of your value was captured from that sale, e-commerce would be better. I think e-commerce stores would make a lot more cash and customers would be happier. It's fascinating to me that SaaS companies with thousands of active paying customers, right? So like at any moment, thousands of people pay them and rely on them. You email them, you don't get an auto reply. You know, you get a you get a person who responds and says, like, how can I help you? But an e-commerce store who like even a huge e-commerce store gets a few hundred customers a day. That's a lot. That's like hundreds of orders a day. Um, they won't talk to a single person. There's no like typically there's no live chat. They're not even customizing their auto reply. Everyone uses like the same three tools. And it's like, thanks so much. We'll be right back. Our usual hours are this. It's just immediately apprehensive, immediately pushing me away as a customer. So my first of three growth tips as I come up with the other two for e-commerce growth, <laughs> remove your auto reply from your support and just instead be wicked fast and actually replying. You know, be wicked fast and actually replying. Because what you'll also see is you get opportunities for upsell. You know, so someone buys from you, but they used their work address to buy your, your box of protein bars, okay? They email in asking for status update. Instead of your auto reply, you look at the shipping address, you, you check out the order status, and it looks like it's going to an office building. And then you say, oh great, it looks like it should be there today. By the way, are you getting these for your office? Did you know we'll give you 20% off if you subscribe? Did you know we'll give you 20% off if you order five boxes and our expiry is nine months so they should last in your office kitchen? So all of these become opportunities to make more cash and instead these e-commerce stores are becoming obsessed with the wrong types of automation. They're optimizing the wrong things. Like, let's get an, an auto reply in our support chat. Give me a break. So that's one thing I see, and it drives me crazy. Like, I see <laughs> this because 
I send newsletters to these stores and my inbox immediately has hundreds yeah. and hundreds of auto replies. And the auto replies are not from our SaaS customers. They're from our e-commerce stores who yeah. usually make way less money, have lower margins, have more reason to comfort me as a customer to win me back than the SaaS tools uh, where they get my money every month automatically. And they don't. So that's, that's growth tip one, number one. Uh, maybe you could react to that if you, if you disagree and I'll jump into two more. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Ryan, on this. And uh, I think this also has to do with, uh, with the fact that few e-commerce companies actually know the impact of their numbers because they look at their 6 or 8 or 10% repurchase rate, by, but they don't know what a 70% repurchase rate will, would mean for them. And that means they are not training their customer support properly or they are not having a, a growth mentality towards what retention means for them. And that means lack of uh, empathy for their customers. And let's see the... Uh, to support ticket and not as an opportunity for future purchases, but as a cost and let's automate that as well. Even though mm -hmm. there are some ways to automate the auto replies because I was thinking uh, when, while you were uh, speaking about this, that there are companies that are responding in, uh, uh, are automating their responses in a very funny way because they are yeah. using GIFs, you know, and they are saying that we are doing this and that and uh, that, Make, make you think that you are welcome to, to talk with them, but they are just a bit uh, uh, occupied at, the, at this moment. They are busy and they, that they, are, they can't reply, but they are giving you this nice GIF so that you feel better and they will get back to you in maximum two hours. And in one hour, they are getting back to you, which is over delivery in terms of what you are expecting because they've stated your expectation to two hours and they are always responding in one hour. So you can still automate if you can do it uh, properly. I think that's a great point. I would make an exception for those types of stores. They use GIFs, it's funny. Because what they're creating is a touch point. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a touch point to their brand. It begins building rapport. It does set expectations, like you said, and they can over deliver those expectations. But what most stores do when they don't personalize or customize is it's like a slap in the face. It's like, ah, okay, give us a minute. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like knocking on someone's door and they know you're coming and they don't want to open it. That's what it feels like. So think of any of your areas where maybe you're slapping customers in the face and turn it into a touch point where they throw closer to your brand. Uh, you want to keep the automation, keep it. But like you said, um, personalize it at least. Add, a, add like a GIF from the office or something. Like it takes 10 seconds to add personality. So that's number one. Number two, uh, consumers are savvier than ever these days. And one of the ways that they exemplify the savviness is they comparison shop everything. So someone could love your tool or your concept or your product or think they love it, have, love the idea of it. They go to your page and they see it's X price per month or per ounce or per bushel or whatever. And then they go, let me, let me just quickly, uh, and they open a new tab, right? At the very least, this is like best case scenario, they'll, they'll search for a discount code for your product, which is nice, you know, can't blame them, can't blame them. That's why you've got Retail Me Not, you've got billion dollar websites that just post coupon codes. So people are gonna do that, not everyone, but people. And then if they can't do that, they'll search alternative to blank. So alternative, maybe using different keywords, they don't necessarily explicitly say alternative to your brand of milk, but they might say healthy, cheap milks or whatever they want to say. 
And so people are searching for alternatives. They're comparison shopping all day. Not only because they're always looking for the best price, looking for the best solution that meets the price in this combination matrix that's in their head, not yours. And so knowing this as the entrepreneur, you need to justify, you need to justify what value you're trying to extract from the consumer. So the way to do that, here's tip number two, is to actually have a story and not a made up story, not like the Seth Godin, all marketers are liars, all marketers tell stories, but you actually need to have a, a point of view. So for example, let's say I'm buying a health food, health food or like uh, athleisure. These are a couple categories that can be wildly different in terms of how much it costs. I could find a protein bar for $3. I could find a website on Shopify that sells protein bars for $9 each. You know what I mean? Or, or some kombucha or some yoga pants that are $400 versus 50. So where is that gap? How is that gap justified? Well, some of it's design, some of it's gonna be reviews and social proof and all that. But a lot of it is going to be uh, the story you tell because people cannot comparison shop a story. So they can't say, I really love this story, but they're $90. Let me go try to find another yoga brand that's $89 with as good of a story. You know, that's not going to happen in my opinion. And so your story can justify your price and it can therefore reduce those comparison shop impulses. Because when you go and you see something and your value, your value built-in algorithms, like everybody likes to show your price, the price is right. Everybody has that algorithm that's like, this should be worth that. You know, even if we're thoughtful, self-aware, we kind of have a decent sense. Like, ah, this should not cost that much. It shouldn't. But we will allow stories to pull us up to that level. And so many people create stores you don't see their name on it anywhere, you know, don't even, you don't see like anything other than like a contact form. You might not even see an email address, just a contact form because what they're afraid of getting like one spam email a day, who cares? You know what I mean? Like I have, I have 12 email addresses published all over the internet. If you spam me, I'm just going to delete it. It doesn't matter. This isn't a real problem, right? <laughs> this isn't a real problem. So you go to a store, it's like you want to rationalize this price, but you know I can comparison shop the crap out of you. So justify it. Tell me a story. And people don't do that. So that's tip number two. That, uh, that makes sense. And this has to do with, uh, with the fact that they are not realizing that we are in the era of customer experience. So there are people which are looking at the price, but uh, as, uh, as we are going from industrial age towards information age, and now we are towards uh, experience age, we are paying more for feelings then we are paying for the products. So the same product from a shitty provider with 10 bucks less, I'm not gonna buy it. I'm gonna buy it for, from the one that has the best story and that makes me feel good that I'm paying something. Because the, the, we have this buyer's remorse and uh, at the end I'm getting this product but why have I put myself in such a shitty position to buy from this crappy website that is, uh, I don't know, not helping me feel better and not helping, helping me have the, the good image that I'm uh, actually sustaining something that I believe in. So yeah, that makes total sense. And the, the voice that the brands of uh, small e-commerce uh, players have is a voice that shouts, yeah, buy me, buy me, I'm the same as everyone. And uh, I don't have any, anything for you than price then people are not buying on price anymore, on price alone that's, anymore. Yeah, that's right on. And you mentioned buyer's remorse, and the other end of that spectrum is buyer's delight, you know, customer happiness. And so 
part of the reason for this story is because post-purchase, especially in e-commerce, you know, you don't get immediate gratification. You get an order confirmation. Then you have to wait a few days to actually get the product. And in those few days, a lot of things can happen. A lot of regret can set in. A lot of, ooh, I spent too much. A lot of, ah, should I, you know. You might even, even if you're happy with the product, you might have anxiety about whether it will actually show up, whether it will show up on time, whether you'll be there to sign for it, whether it will be broken, something fragile. So during those, that waiting period, you, have, you need that story because they're going to tell that story to themselves so that they live, they dwell on the edge of the spectrum of buyer's delight. Otherwise, your product might show up to someone's doorstep and they're already like disappointed that they bought it. Maybe they told themselves a month ago, Ryan, stop spending so much money online shopping. Ryan, stop buying these kinds of things. So you need to get ahead of that. You need to kind of preemptively strike. That's part of why you need that story. It will justify your price because you're never going to be able to rip someone off today. No one could sell me a $9 bottle of water today unless I'm in the desert because I know what a bottle of water should cost. I can find out the cheapest bottle of water for sale on the internet right now, two seconds. So no one can rip me off anymore. So I need a story to justify the difference in price. It's different. And I need that story to tell myself so that I live on the side of buyer's delight. And then I'm going to experience your product even better. So everyone wins when there's a story. And because most people don't have a story, because most, most entrepreneurs, a lot of them who get into it for the wrong reasons, don't really have a point of view. They're just me too's. This also gives you then a competitive edge because people are going to listen to this. Let's say 100 people listen to this and 20 of you have a point of view and 80 of you just cloned to somebody else's store because you found it on dropship websites. Like you're about to lose if the other people listening to this podcast do what we're talking about um, because you don't have a point of view. You don't have anything to say and customers will pick up on that. And when we live in that kind of world where everyone who's doing things is doing it with conviction, we have better products. We have fewer me too's. And then yeah. therefore, now we achieve this startup dream of, you know, a better place. So that's one and two. Number three, do we still want this? Yeah, because, Ryan, I must warn you, we are packing all these great growth ideas from different experts. And then the end of this year, we're going to print a book with growth ideas for e-commerce. And uh, the listeners of this podcast will be able to, to get them. Ah, right on. Okay, number three. Well, thinking of the sites, uh, the e-commerce brands that we work with that are the most successful, they, uh, I mean, is it, they're, they're doing a lot of things right. Okay, so yeah, they've got really fast websites. They've got really nice images. They work with influencers. They have good support. They don't have stupid auto replies. Um, they use the best apps for everything. They have the nicest looking review app. They have the nicest looking um, order emails and receipts and all of that. So to try to pinpoint... Uh, to one thing though, uh, what are they doing really well? I think this is in incredibly important for e-commerce nowadays, and it wasn't 10 years ago. It's actually having, it's actually having a good product. <laughs> um, so, so many stores are just dropship nowadays, yeah. which as a business model, to not fulfill yourself, for someone else to do fulfillment on demand is amazing. But dropship has no longer just become a business model. It's become a way to sell anything in 10 seconds. And it's become a way where now a thousand people sell every product. Everybody yeah. sells everything is all the same with a different color or a different embroidery or whatever. And this is creating like dissonance in your customer's mind because they look at your hoverboard and they're like, yeah, but like they're still, 
like how much, which other, so you kind of have to go this path of what I've been meditating on. This is something else that someone much smarter than me said as a quote, right? To be the best at something, you, you want to be the best at something in the world to really win. And you go, oh gosh, that's overwhelming. How do I do that? I'm just a normal person who drinks iced coffee. And you go, so well, how do I do that? Well, to be the best at something, the quickest path is to be the only at that something. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, that crushes it, but you're going to sell the same junk. I don't want to say it's junk. Some of these products are very good quality. But you're going to sell the same product anyone else can sell. It's like, what are you doing, man? So make your product, make your product one of a kind, and now you're the best person in the world to go to for that product. And so many people, they just blaze past this. They're like, no, no, no. I just want Facebook tips. Tell me the latest way to manipulate this and that. Um, how do I you know, reduce my uh, cost per click on Google shopping? This is all they want to hear about, but you're, you're not solving the root problem in that case. You know, If you really have a problem with your store and you're struggling to grow, look at the roots first. You know, Not your Shopify theme, not if it takes four seconds to load your page versus one or two. Those are all fine. Those will all give you some improvements when you have the roots worked out. But your root problem for a lot of people, in my opinion, is still having a good product. And in, in programming, this is like, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, I need a good product. That's why we spend a lot of money to hire good developers. But then we build a store. We don't hire a single person to build our product. We just browse AliExpress, and then we wonder why we're not rock stars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, so innovate with your product. That's the, that's the first one. And then you, we can go reverse order. As you grow, then do the second tip we talked about, that if you're a store and you have problems with growth and you're listening to this, apply these tips in reverse order. Oh, yeah. Make the best product, tell your story, and then you can do tactical op- optimizations like removing your support auto-reply. Yeah. But if you're selling an auto AliExpress, which it could be very fine, you could do very well, but if you're doing that and you immediately just go to remove your auto-reply, you might not be fixing the root problem and that goes back to my talk in Milan. Growth starts with you. It doesn't matter what levers you're pulling if the machine they're attached to is junk. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ryan, you've been stating something, and I'm uh, I'm I'm a bit uh, surprised after uh, uh, my own angle to see this uh, this game. You've said that if you're not looking at your customers and if you're not looking at your product and to innovate. You are looking at how to increase the decrease the CPC and how to increase the CTR on Facebook. Is it just me, or maybe that's the harsh reality that if the Facebook and the Google ad teams are so good at habit forming for their own advertisers that they are, let's say, hypnotizing them into using their products on and on so that they can wrongfully wrongly believe that their growth equals their ability to use Google AdWords and Facebook advertising better. And they end up having only a single channel which is paid, which means that if you don't pay, you don't grow. Okay, so a couple of thoughts. If it was true that every successful business right now is successful, even in small part, because they advertise in general, much less that they advertise on Facebook and Google, then I would be an insane heretic to say any of these ideas. But it's not true. I don't advertise. 
We're doing great. Okay? So it's like, well, they're just one story. Well, no. There's thousands of me. There's thousands of people who are fundamentally against advertising who are growing their companies. So what's going on there? Is it, is it an exception or are we being lazy? And so, look, advertising can work really well. People do it because it works. I'm not sitting here saying advertising doesn't work. I'm saying it doesn't have to be the only path. And so, yes, for some people, it is a harsh reality. If you don't set up your infrastructure, if you don't set up your culture and your principles and the way you treat your customers in a way that your customers refer you more customers, that's not your business model. It's my business model. I try to build the best products available that our customers will love, and that compels them to get us more customers. That's the way I do it. Some people don't want to stare at the terminal. They'd rather stare at the Facebook ad panel. You could argue that that's the same difference and that I should not be superior just because I prefer to look at one interface and look at another. But the difference is when I look at an interface, nobody else, no like stranger out there gets richer. right? So Mark Zuckerberg doesn't get richer when I stare at a code above. But he gets richer when you're trying to figure out how to manipulate Facebook. And, and really you're trying to figure out how to manipulate people which to me seems again antithetical to being a great empathetic entrepreneur when you when the way you acquire customers is by manipulating them that doesn't really contend well with me so instead it should be how do i manipulate my own abilities increase my own throughput create the best products for people and then hope that you know they'll do a solid for me and return the favor for customers and they have they have every single time and that's how every business grew for hundreds of years you did a good job for your customers and they treated you with loyalty and referrals. Yep. Now we're taking this era of just cutting the line and just pay for attention and, and uh, get yourself in front of people's faces, pay extra to be at the top of the feed and pay, you know, and it's fine, but I don't think it's a sustainable long-term strategy. And in e-commerce, unfortunately, it's becoming, it's kind of eating up the whole strategy. It's becoming the strategy. E-commerce marketing to a lot of degrees equals uh, Facebook ad interface expertise. Yeah, um, and I think it's a bummer, and I can't single-handedly change it. I can just pre- present uh, one perspective on how to go about, uh, uh, you know, de-risking and kind of withdrawing from it at, in your own operation. Yeah, uh, Ryan, we are uh, about to, to to get to the final question from this uh, from this podcast, uh, and. Uh, I wonder if you can share uh, an advice that you would give to yourself when you were like 10 years younger than you are right now, because there are people which are very young here and they are just getting into this and uh, maybe you could help them out with a shortcut. Uh, so some things I, I think I did right. Maybe that's because my bias is I don't want to, generally I don't want to think I have a life of regrets or things I would do differently. Everything has sort of been a butterfly effect and led me here. Um, so in general, some things I think I did right that I would tell myself again, uh, work on lots of things, whether that means lots of industries, work for lots of bosses, always have side hustles, that kind of thing. More specifically, if I could tell myself to do something 10 years ago, the immediate thing that comes to mind would be learn to code. Um, <laughs> you know? And I did eventually learn to code, not until a few years ago, though. And if I had learned earlier, you know, maybe I would have gone a different direction. Um, but that's a little scary to say, well, I, I wish I learned to code when I was 19 instead of when I was 25 or something. Because, you know, maybe I would have just become a full-time developer. I wouldn't have been an entrepreneur. Maybe I would yeah. have gotten really good at that, like too good. Now I'm not any good. 
So no one would hire me as a developer from stage. Um, but if I had learned to code earlier, maybe that would have been my destiny and I would have achieved my potential. So I'm hesitant to tell anyone watching this to learn to code. But what I will say from that anecdote is um, if I could tell myself to do stuff earlier, it would just be learn more skills. You know, um, we, we like to refine the skills we already have. You know, so you go to the gym, one guy's got huge arms. And what does he do? He does arm workouts and then his legs are tiny. And then some woman, she's got like big, strong legs, but her arms are kind of like, you feel like you could break them in half. And so people feel comfortable continually refining the thing they're already kind of good at because it's easy. It's easy to keep bicep curling if you have strong arms. Uh, and as marketers, it's easy to just fill up our day with like reading 10 more articles. I do this too. But to read 10 more articles, to learn a little bit more about churn and retention, learn a little bit more about how do I calculate that and how do I think about this. But it's a lot scarier, but also a lot more net-net impactful to, to go sidestep and learn a new skill from zero. Um, and everybody will debate me on this. You know, you should become an expert in one thing versus being a generalist. But I'm not really saying to become a generalist. I'm saying learn new skills because you're going to get diminishing returns, in my opinion, if you just keep refining your one skill because you're not even going to really be challenging yourself. So whether that's learn to code, learn to crochet, learn to do calligraphy, you know, that could be cool too. Um, learn a new skill as soon as possible. You know, for me, learning to code was it. Most recently, I've been taking online art classes, which uh, on the outset looks useless as a marketer. But I like to blog. I like to have illustrations in my blog. I used to pay an illustrator to make those illustrations. Now I can do my own doodles. So I just recorded, uh, launched a new course. I did my own doodles. I did my own, uh, you know, whatever, images and slide deck. So I'm now a more self-sufficient marketer because I started learning to draw. So you never know how your skills are going to be able to intersect. And when they intersect, you get the multiplier effect. So learn new skills. That's my tip. Perfect. So, Ryan, the, the last question is uh, around your uh, skill of being focused because you you are focused right you've been able to do a lot of things uh, until this uh, age and uh, we had a chat around being focused and uh, I, I would like to, to, to give us some insights around how can we shift our attention towards the things that we've decided to, to do at the very beginning I think it's about taking a I continue saying this in my in my own thoughts to myself, to other people. Uh, it's two words, via negativa. It's to approach the things you want to achieve via negativa, meaning don't take your to-do list. This is my to-do list. Um, one of my to-dos for this month was to outline a new course. Well, two days ago, we shipped the entire course. It's done. It's live, 48 lectures. My goal for the month was to outline the course. Before the month ended, I did the course, yep. and we, we sold $20,000 pre-launch, and I'm going to write about that, so that's easy public information so everyone can learn how we did it. Um, but the way I got there wasn't by saying, well, now I need to do this, and now I need to do this, and now I need to do this. That doesn't create focus. That's, that's distraction and overwhelm. Perfect. So uh, any question that I haven't been so inspired to ask you out, Ryan? Or any message I, that, that you want to share with, you, with the audience be, before saying goodbye? Sure. Um, if you're curious uh, more of my ramblings, check out uh, what I have to say on Twitter or my website. They're both just Ryan C. Culp, ryancolp.com. 
And uh, some of the things I've talked to you about today, from FOMO to cross-sell to case studies, how did we sell $20,000 on a course launch? I'm going to be writing about all of that on ryancgulf.com. So check it out, and hopefully it encourages you to, uh, to one-up me and uh, get on the next episode of the show so I can learn from you. <laughs> That's great. Then, Ryan, thanks a lot for your, uh, for your time, man. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe, and uh, see you next time.